Monkey to Let Go, the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist, by Leopold Lambert. Today, can the master's tools dismantle the master's house with Mabel Wilson? Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Mabel Wilson uh, and we're recording this conversation from New York as a part of uh, a series uh, that will work in parallel of the new issue of the Phenomenalist magazine dedicated to design and racism. Uh, Mabel has a practice that um, questions the politics of the built environment through uh, several mediums and disciplines, uh, writings, art and design. Uh, hello Mabel. Hello. Uh, so today we will speak about um, we will speak uh, maybe from inside the discipline of architecture um, and uh, elaborate and examine its relationship to to structural racism. Uh, but before maybe we um, before we jumped right into the topic, and although I'm fairly sure that it will be connected somehow, would you mind telling us a little bit what you're currently working on? I'm working on a book called Building Race and Nation. Uh, and so most recently, I have been combing through archives, um, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., on Friday, um, reading what are called the D.C. Commissioner's Logbooks, which basically were the three commissioners um, who were selected by George Washington to oversee the construction of Washington, D.C., both the planning Uh, the selling of the land, and then the construction of the White House and what was called the President's Palace at the time. Um, and so I was been going through that. And then on Saturday, yesterday, I was in the Library of Virginia looking at exactly the same thing, the log books of the directors of Richmond uh, who were building the um, Civic District of Richmond, Virginia, which was essentially a predecessor to Washington, D.C., Um, and the reason it's a predecessor is because Thomas Jefferson designed the Virginia State House and was one of the directors, essentially. Um, and then once he became Secretary of State, um, was essentially kind of overseeing uh, the construction of Washington, D.C. So the, the, the design of the Virginia State House, which is really one of the first pieces of American civic architecture, was a predecessor for fundamentally what becomes the U.S. Capitol and the White House. Um, and what I'm interested in is trying to understand how people like Jefferson and Washington, but, but also the people who were, um, you know, the commissioners themselves. There was a guy, last name was Hay, who worked closely with Jefferson, and you can find his letters to Jefferson and Jefferson's papers. They all owned slaves. So on one hand, they're sort of imagining what does it mean to be this self-possessed, um, self-conscious citizen, no longer under the control of the monarchy, certainly for Jefferson, you know, no longer the subject of God, right, of divine rule, but self-possessed and, and modern, essentially. And yet they're imagining, you know, all men are born free, you know, the, the discourse of natural rights, every single man is born free. And yet their lives were sustained by enslaved labor. So what I've been looking for in the logbooks is evidence of how slaves were essentially part of the labor pool for building the Virginia State House and the Capitol. <laughs> and that's something that as a, if I if I understand your work correctly, that's something that you even look uh, in a Uh, genealogy that that still exists today in the in the sort of over exploitative work working uh, conditions of uh, um, in the way in the way our cities are are being built right you have you have this this new project about about um, uh, who builds your architecture yeah yeah yeah, yeah no it's it's definitely the mm. question of forced labor enslaved labor um, I wouldn't say there's a historical linkage but I do think you know today with particularly what's going on in the Middle East, but that happens in New York, that you often get workers who aren't citizens, for example, um, who are not documented, then become very easily exploitable precisely for that reason, because they have no recourse to rights, which is essentially, you know, what when someone was enslaved, you were property, you weren't 
rights. And at that time, there was no belief that you had the capacity to be a citizen. So that's part of what I'm interested in, because, I mean, they had this huge problem is that they had brought all of this labor. I mean, that's essentially why Africans came. It wasn't, you know, it's like, oh, let's, they had more land than they knew what to do with. They did literally didn't have the labor pool to be able to grow things like tobacco, which were now becoming popular in France and particularly in England, if we look at Virginia. So they had to import this labor and they realized, oh, well, rather than indentured servitude for X period of time, we could actually have people here in perpetuity, you know, enslaved. And so, it certainly worked prior to the revolution. I think what the revolution brought up was this question of, you know, and I think some people recognize that, you know, that there was a, you know, that that was, there was a paradox there that we can't, we can't talk about the morality of democracy and freedom and liberty and be slaveholders. Um, and that many people recognize, but they were so fundamentally dependent upon that labor. But even Thomas Jefferson imagined emancipation. Like he, he figured out, oh, well, this can't go on forever. So, we should figure out a scheme, a plan to emancipate, um, emancipate slaves. But the problem was worse than an enslaved black was a free black. And they knew they couldn't keep them in the United States if they emancipate them. So then they came up with the scheme that they would send them back to Africa. So that's where Liberia, Sierra Leone come from. So there was this sense that the black body had no place in the, in the space of the nation. So, and so that's why I'm interested in this question of building race and nation, because at the same time, they're figuring out what race actually is. I mean, they sort of understood that there were these differences, these human differences, which they're now starting to call race, but it's not yet the modern scientific conception of race until you get basically the, the modern sciences in the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you, were, you were kind enough to send me your um, sort of abstract for this uh, book you were mm-hmm. just talking about, and one sentence particularly hit me in... Um, in um, the way we should be uh, interpreting this um, uh, slave labor as fully part of the of the sort of architectural process in the, the construction, the very construction of architecture, uh, whether it's uh, uh, symbolically charged like uh, Washington D.C. or or or, mm-hmm. or just any any architecture itself, and uh, you're talking about the the position positioning the management of the slave body as a technology. And um, and I think that's that's particularly um, uh, striking as a sort of absolute disposition disposition of of uh, African bodies towards their their actual body and their uh, yeah. their their workforce. Right? Can can you tell us more about this particular um, approach to uh, to this historical uh, condition? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm interested in, and this is how it relates to to some of the fundamental concepts of architecture is again the question of the subject and really the ontological condition of modern subjectivity where you are, again, you're self-possessed, that you are in possession of. And that what was happening in that period was this belief that some people were, had the faculties and ability to be much more, um, more intelligent, more rational, more, so, um, you know, and and the world was always broken down into you had Asia, you had the New World, and you had Africa, and you had Europe. Like those were the symbolically four continents, and Europe was clearly going to be the leader. Or even with Europe, though, there were hierarchies. Obviously, the Irish were a problem. The Italians weren't. Eh, they were okay, but not so. <laughs> you know, but the Germans and you know the so-called Anglo-Saxons were by far the most superior. Right? They were the ones who had the capacity to think and to be rational. And so, again, part of the problem with you know, the African or the Negro, because so many, even, even by the, by the 18th century, there were so many blacks that had been, you know, the products of relationships between blacks, whites, Indians, um, was this belief that they didn't have the intellectual capacity to be a citizen. Right. And so that often is a tied to questions of aesthetics, um, the ability to understand beauty. And so when you read somebody like Jefferson, who's essentially saying, we want a beautiful specimen of architecture, the Virginia State House, which is based on the Maison Carré in Nîmes. Um, he's talking about cultivating a very particular American civilization and culture that only European descendant whites could understand and appreciate. And you didn't have that capacity. So the, the idea of the aesthetic appreciation of the building was implicit in what he was talking about. 
And that, I think, gets embedded into this emergence of an understanding of a history of architecture. So you see these in Freeman. You can see, you know, in the, the Orientalism of um, Owen Jones. You know, like, in that period, Bannister Fletcher. Like, they didn't know quite what to do with that Persian architecture, the Egyptian, you know, there was that other architecture versus the lineage of Gothic onward, right? And so the received histories that we have in our, it's, it's very its very racialized. So I wanted to do this project precisely because the question of race had not yet been pinned down to see how concepts of race, um, of racial difference and aesthetics um, and emerging bodies of knowledge around democracy were all sort of forming together. So race doesn't come afterwards, but that race is implicit in understanding who was capable of being citizen and who was not, who had to be just labor in perpetuity or not. And, you know, and often, you know, there were the questions of Irish workers, like, what do you do with it? Because the Irish were seen as inferior by the, by the British and the Americans kind of adopted that attitude as well. Scots fared a little bit better. Germans were ideal <laughs> in terms of, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the letters I was just reading on Friday about, they were trying to get workers into Washington to build buildings. Right. And so, they were looking for Dutch. They were looking for Germans. They were looking for 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 um, Scottish people from Scotland. Um, and then they just realized we just we need we need bodies. We've got to start basically quarrying stone. And they were like, uh, we need twenty Negroes <laughs> basically to go to the quarries to start to quarry along. We need to get ten Negroes basically to go help you know Andrew Ellicott continue to survey the land, clear the land, so they can basically sell off the land so they can have the money to build. So that becomes part of the cycle because essentially they need the labor to build. And the idea that they would import free labor was the most desirable, but it wasn't the most expedient. Mm-hmm. So that, That's what's really striking about, about uh, slave labor is how much, uh, uh, even though there's a sort of 10 or 20 or the, a sort of numerical uh aspect to it it's always we're we're always talking of a aggregated uh uh, uh labor potential like yeah. we're we're not talking about individual bodies one by yeah. one and obviously yeah. even less so of identities but that's that's uh, fairly obvious but we're we're really dealing about uh with a, a sort of mass of uh, anatomical mass of uh, of uh, of work aren't we yeah. yeah, that could that ideally is reproduce reproducing, which is essentially what happened in Virginia. That they, for some reason, unlike you know, from what I can tell, the larger plantation owners, even in the British West Indies in Jamaica, but certainly in the the French holdings, they would typically only import men. They weren't interested, so they they could work you to death, and they just they just buy more people essentially. Um, but in Virginia, for some reason, they also brought a lot of women and children. So they basically bought in when they were buying um, enslaved Africans, and they were sometimes coming from the Caribbean as well. They were basically bringing in families. So very quickly, that population from the latter part of the 18th century, um, or, or 17th century actually, grew exponentially. Uh, so William Byrd was a um, planter, very well known. He built, a, I think, very famous house called Westover. And he actually owned the property that Richmond was built on, Richmond, Virginia. And so um, at one point he just said, oh my God, Virginia's going to become New Guinea because there were so many blacks, you know, that the population by the time Jefferson took one of the first census or the census of 1790-something, I think, they realized that there were um, almost as many blacks as there were whites in the States. So, uh, and that was simply just out of the numbers of the people that they imported. And it was a problem because a lot of them had been freed. Um, some, some, some owners recognized that we can't call ourselves, you know, these sort of, you know, sort of um, men of democracy and own slaves. So, uh, you know, some manumitted their slaves, some freed them upon death. And so then all of a sudden you had freed blacks. And that was even more fearful because they became a model for the enslaved blacks. <laughs> and so the whole point was to get them out of the country, you know, and to move them. So the, the colonization society became very popular. So what I'm interested in is this kind of space, you know, the space of the nation and the fact that you could have some people come who was supposed to come and thrive and who wasn't, you know. 
Uh, and then you could see in all of this why the Civil War was inevitability. I mean, it was just, it, it was, it was just going to explode. Um, and so in those, um, in those consideration for all those um, enslaved African bodies, uh, we are obviously seeing a sort of architectural dimension to, to it, but maybe maybe it's interesting to talk about design in general because mm -hmm. then we, we're not maybe uh, constrained by a sort of very uh, narrow definition of what architecture might mm -hmm. be and we might not just stop at the, the sort of uh, uh, what we think a building might be but yeah. uh, when we when we think about design we think about maybe we add to it also the whole dimension of transportation we mm -hmm. add the dimension of uh, the, the control of territory the, uh, but also we we also add um, a sort of non-physical or I mean not at least at first uh, physical dimension which is uh, legislation which is a uh, um, police enforcement mm -hmm. and and I think we we can um, uh, we can uh, we can see how there is a an, an incredibly uh, present um, echo with the situation we uh, currently know mm -hmm. um, and that's that's uh, that's a little bit where I almost wanted to wanted to start but uh, I I hope the the jump will not the jump in time will not be too. Uh, too abrupt, but I, I don't think it really is because again we're we're still dealing with very similar uh, 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 structures, uh, or at least the, the sort of the, the sort of um, genealogy of, of those structures we we've been describing. But so maybe to to engage um, to engage uh, the topic of how. As architects, we are uh, necessarily involved with a structure, and how can we address them? And I, I would like to bring to bring up the the this uh, roundtable you've been uh, organizing at uh, Columbia University School of Architecture mm -hmm. uh, that was called uh, "Critical Dialogues on Race and Modern Architecture." That was extremely extremely interesting. Um, uh, with uh, Adrian Brown, Mark Crimson, Diana Harris, uh, Cedira Herbman, uh, who's been writing quite a quite a lot about what we we just described as well, uh, as well as Irene Chang and Charles Davis, um, and uh, you organized this roundtable. So you you opened uh, you opened uh, this presentation, and you gave this uh, very. Uh, incredible number of 91% of uh, American architects currently being white uh, and uh, and to which we can add the statistics that uh, uh, a student in uh, Washington University Melissa Betts who has uh, is featured in the latest issue of the Phenomenalist magazine that says that 83% of uh, architecture programs don't have any black faculty uh, including uh, very uh, renowned school. Like what percentage? Eighty-three percent. Wow. Like Harvard, Washington University, and uh, and uh, a few others. Uh, so, I think this is this is usually the way we start this conversation by looking at who is within this field that is problematized, and we'll. I think it's important we we spend a little bit of time on it, even though we we should also see uh, beyond this simple. A simple that's a quick word but <laughs> beyond this uh, this dimension uh can you can you maybe um can you maybe as as yourself being involved in uh, architectural uh, education can can you and and as a, an ar a practicing architect can can we talk a little bit about this um uh, extremely problematic uh, uh uh, lack of representation of what uh, mm -hmm. the society is in this dimension of our, in this discipline of architecture. Mm -hmm. um, I think. I mean. I think there are two ways to um, address it. I think one, you know, is the question of sh the sheer numbers of the of the current profession and why that is what it is. And so, and I think there, are, I, I think there are very real reasons why people don't go into architecture. For example, if you're African American. I think the other one, which is the thing that I've certainly been pursuing, which is related to race and modern architecture, is to really understand the discourse out of which the profession comes from, and to also see that as also being, in part, part of the problem. It's a, it's a very European 
I mean, it's a racialized discourse because it has to do with the origins of the concept of architecture, which is that one thinks and then one builds as opposed to building. I mean, people build around the world. This is what I always tell my students. They build all over the world. They don't, doesn't make it architecture. Architecture has a very specific historical moment through the use of drawings, the writings of treaties, the, you know, modes of abstraction to think and then to make a set of instructions, drawings that then tell other people to build. Mm -hmm. That is the origins, and it's very. I mean, it's 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 codified in you know it, you know it starts in Italy. You know, and you see you know kind of parallels with the rise of, of humanism essentially, and that is the the sort of history of it. But my my interest in the race in modern architecture, which I've been doing with my collaborators Irene Chang and Charles Davis, who also do phenomenal work on this issue, is they both point to the the same thing as the fact that if you actually look back at that history, it has to do with this understanding of like how significant racial difference, just understanding what that meant, was deeply embedded in defining what aesthetics of architecture um, were, um, tectonics of architecture. So, for example, Charles Davis works, there's a really great work on Villadoux, Eugene Villadoux, um, and Gottfried Semper, like the icons. You go to Ken Frampton's book on modern architecture, and there you, there you are, about structure, material, form, you know, and they both themselves do these incredible ethnographic anthropological studies, you know, drawing from ideas in philosophy of Herder and Kant, but they, they're also kind of thinking of ethnographically. How is the European different from the people that we find on this continent, the people in the New World? What makes us different? And then they, you know, the, the myth of the Aryan, you know, like somebody writes this entire book, basically, you know, sort of drawing on, um, you know, like how the migration of certain ideas of details, you know, come from this, this vernacular, like you can find it in the vernacular, right? And so that gives rise to, you know, the kind of tectonics of Schinkel, you know, all the way through Barons, and, you know, you, you read Adolf Loos's Ornament and Crime, right? Let's get rid of, or I mean, that's how we're, it's received. We're going to get rid of ornament and we're going to have this incredibly aesthetically clean. But if you read that narrative, he says Negro, talks about pygmy. It's a civilizationalist narrative about the progress of the, the modern man's progress, right? And that's a very particular man. It's not a universal man. It's very specific. And yet that's what you learn in your Architectural History 101. Mm. So race and modern architecture is really going through looking at you know, people are looking at Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, there is um, work on um, ger some German modernism, um, uh, the Berlin IBA, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the art, you know, sort of New York classic architects like Starrett, um, uh, American suburbia. Um, you know, we've got um, some people actually looking relationships between Brazil and Lagos in the 19th century to see how concepts of race were even playing themselves out in the global south in the 19th century around representations in architecture. So the concept of race is deeply sort of embedded. And so the Race and Modern Architecture Project is trying to say it's there, but you have to be willing to look for it because it's so fundamental to how, you know, this history of architecture has been conceptualized. Um, and so I think that's part of it, is that the body of knowledge, in my own experience, like I was learning about Italian palazzos, you know, when I'm 19 years old, and I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with, like, what my life has been about? Where's my culture and <laughs> all of that? Um, so I do think that there's something already about the discipline that makes it very difficult if you're not you know, sort of invested very deeply, and I would just say, like, European culture and history to really, you know, kind of find find your way. It's, it's challenging. We have global histories, which have been phenomenal, you know, that that project of trying to, to write a more inclusive is certainly a start. But just being inclusive doesn't necessarily deal with the kind of racial politics of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one part of the question. The other part of the, the issue is just the cost of education, how much it costs to become an architect, starting salaries of architect. I just saw one as low as, and internships range between like $28,000 and $53,000 in the United States. So you're going to come out with maybe $100,000, $150,000 in debt from four years of school. Really, you want to make $28,000? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And then the salaries even of project architects aren't, aren't high. So if you're a young African-American 
you know, maybe the first generation to go to college, hey, I'd go into law, I'd go into medicine, I'd, I'd go, if I'm going to do a graduate level, I'd do an MBA. I mean, it doesn't, you know, the, the reality, I think, also of the, you know, of, of the cost of the education versus fundamentally your ability to pay it off. I mean, I'm old enough in the sense I miss the, you know, the ballooning of the cost of education. So, so I think one is the education itself. Two is really what you can encounter um, professionally. And I think it's still, it's a, it's a, I call it a white rich man's profession. You have to know people who have money, um, you know, and the way wealth has been allocated in this country. And if you're black, you don't necessarily have access to that kind of money, those contacts, per se. Um, yeah, and I guess that, that gives us the opportunity to say that we can really make a whole intersectional reading of, uh, of the situation because obviously gender has been also a, a, yeah. a historical, uh, historical uh, uh, problem. Uh, yeah, I think there might be, I think we figured out, is there six tenured black women in architecture in this country? How many? Six, I think. Six tenured, wow. <laughs> and there's a yeah, it's a friend of mine who's tenure track. She was tenured elsewhere, but she's now tenure track. Uh, I think there are more people teaching, but women, yeah. I mean, small numbers, maybe twenty total. Yeah, Melissa Vess was mentioning uh, that she could uh, she could have all of them in her apartment if they wanted. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's yeah. The, that's the way she was. <laughs> she was around the table. Um, that would make a very interesting conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but so we you mentioned uh, you you mentioned the word uh, inclusivity and I think we are um, that's that's precise that's a very interesting word uh, because of what it allows uh, at first sight and but then also we see the limitation of it uh, quite uh, quite quickly yeah. and i think uh, that's that's also that's also what we should be talking about in this conversation which is that it's not just about uh, being more inclusive it's not just about making those statistics uh, drastically change even though obviously it is it is uh, uh, it is uh, something tremendously important and obviously if if those numbers change obviously the conversation will change too uh, but I think it's also we should also be looking at at what architecture fundamentally does which is a, an instrument of uh, of domination whatever it might uh, mm -hmm. whatever it might be um, and uh, in uh, in your introduction to the round table I was uh, citing earlier You cited uh, Audrey Lord saying, "Can the master's tool dismantle the master's house?" And I, I'm kind of wanting to paraphrase her saying, "Can the master's tool construct anything else in the master's house?" Uh, <laughs> uh, in, a, in a more architectural uh, 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 interpretation of this sentence, uh, so uh, that's the real question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I've been really, I've been thinking a lot about that. I don't know. I mean, I think. You know, some people would argue we need some other project beyond humanism, that democracy was never going to work to begin with, because it wasn't, it, it, it had a, you know, it portended toward um, universalism and inclusion, but fundamentally that's not how the system worked. The system always sustained some lives at the expense of others, essentially. Uh, and when they say black lives matter, I think uh, um, that the... Um, I think that, I mean, I always read that as, yes, the material condition of black life hasn't been sustained, and that's why it has to matter. Um, because economically, you know, the access to jobs, the, you know, even the idea that one would have housing that could sustain a life that then is affordable, and one has access to food that's affordable, that, that one would have everything that allows a life to be sustained in material, in a, in a material way. I mean, it hasn't, doesn't happen, hasn't happened in this country. And it just, you know, just again and again. I mean, all of the late 19th, 20th century, his, his, you know, his history, um, historical work that I've done, you know, just sort of points to just failure after failure, you know, and I think there's a level of resilience, but at a certain point, it's just, you know, like America, it just, it's unrelenting. It's like it's in the DNA, certainly, of the United States, I think. You know, because I could go back now that I'm reading 17th century history and it's like, oh, 
Yeah, I mean, they made a law. Black women had to go out in the fields and work, and white indentured servant women could only work in the house. That's where. And so there was a line being drawn then. And then your, your, if, if, your, your future was determined by your mother's womb. So if you were born in a black woman's womb, you were a slave. Didn't matter if your father was white or not. If you were born in a white woman's womb, didn't matter if your father was black, you were free. And so that, you know, that law in Virginia, and I mean, that's what fundamentally determines the inequalities, essentially. And so, you know, and, and race is about the controlling of, of space, like where people actually go. It's a spatial policing. You know, Jim, that's what Jim Crow was, um, essentially. And that's been so deeply ingrained in housing, cost of housing, um, which then affects school systems, segregated school. I mean, it just, it goes on and on and on and on and on. So yeah, so then you have, you know, black kids who have terrible schools who don't have access to all of this. And of course, they have a much difficult, more difficult time, but it's just so deeply embedded in the social structures and in the spaces that we actually live in day in and day out. Um, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter um, and uh, one very powerful um, phrase that was, uh, that was used by the, by the movement is, uh, are the absolutely tragic last words of Eric, Eric Garner before mm. he was killed by a, by a white fo police officer in State of Nine and um, saying, I can breathe, I can't breathe. And um, I think this, this, um, this sort of uh, imaginary of the breathable and the, the, the sort of atmosphere that surrounds our body and somehow a part of our body since we, we do need to breathe to, to be able to live um, can materialize the whole environment. I mean, you, you said you're interested in the politics of the built environment. I think that's a, that's a whole... All these atmospheres that surround their bodies are uh, are um, precisely what we're talking about here. Architecture being uh, one word for it, but we we could we could use others. But um, I think I'd, I'd I'd love for our listeners to picture picture architecture in a certain way that might not be the exact way they would they would think of it originally i mean you said uh, you said uh, racial laws are i mean uh, the, uh, racism is the way you organize bodies in space i'm paraphrasing a, a tiny bit but it's because that's the definition i use for architecture itself architecture is the discipline that organizes bodies in space it's all about order yeah, yeah. and so we if i talk about a corridor uh, or in a certain way everybody's going to understand what a corridor is and understand that bodies inside a corridor will have only so much choice to go from one point to another uh, just like we just like this corridor what for whatever reason it was built uh, whether it's a it's a I mean we were not talking yet about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that this corridor exists as is as it exists but it it orients and almost dictates the way bodies are organized in that space And so if we take this sort of very primal logic of the corridor and adapt it to the entire uh, configuration of the built environment, that's, that's what we're talking about, aren't we? Well, I mean, if you go back again to kind of the way, this, this idea of modern society, the, new so the emerging social order, because that's part of what I'm interested in building race and nation, is the fact that, okay, so you now have this thing called a nation, Uh, and how is it going to be organized? And they literally, like, the, they have to think of the banks, the monetary system, but then how is land going to be distributed or sold? Or, you know, how were goods going to move? Like, how was the country actually going to... But then you... Okay, if you're going to build a... If you need a bank, you have to have a bank building. And so if you have... If you're going to eventually educate, your, you need universities or you need schools. And, and so all of these things, streets, like you got to pave the streets so that carriages could move. And so the kind of building out of that realm of all of these connections, um, you know, that's where the rise of the modern profession of architecture comes in. I mean, previously in the West, it was clearly, you know, in service of the monarchy uh, and the church. Uh, but now it's in service of what's this thing called modern society. And so, um, yeah. And if that, you know, if some spaces are clearly more valuable and relationships more valuable to sustain versus others that are not, um, 
then, you know, then people have to, those people who aren't being sustained have to become more improvisational in terms of how they live or, I mean, they're useful in some ways, but, you know, their day-to-day lives aren't thought through um, in the same, to the same degree. Or if they are, you don't get the full, you know, like the, the housing problem in the United States, um, you know, particularly the failure of modern high-rise housing, you know, but in, in part that was because they built it. It wasn't essentially supposed to even be permanent housing, but because there was no access to work, a lot of times around the house, particularly in Chicago, there wasn't, there weren't markets, there weren't, they were just isolated and cut off from, you know, the ability to kind of form businesses and other things that might have sustained a c- community. Um, they failed. Of course they were going to fail um, because they're not being afforded all of the other things that actually go into allowing you to have a home. And so, you know, that complexity, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly larger than architecture, but architecture is certainly a part of it. The physical built environment is certainly a part of it, I think. Yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, when, it, when I was trying to figure out the, the right editorial line for this uh, latest issue of the Phenomenalist magazine, I was, I was also trying to um, define it, define the role of architecture in this uh, structural racist system as not being obviously the sole, res- sole responsible, not, maybe not even the inventor of, of, this, uh, of the system, but uh, also not, not, only, not only it is complicit, but without it, it just cannot work. That's also the key thing, is that, and so I guess that, that kind of drives us to the, to the ability, the sort of agency of architects to be able to uh, sometimes simply refuse to be complicit in any of the structure. I mean, there's no really out of the system. Obviously, we cannot we cannot have the sort of illusion that we can we can act from outside of the, of the of the system. But um, <clears throat> there's so many aspects of what we're describing right now that just would not happen if it was not for design and architecture. Yeah. Uh, so, would you? Um, do do you have um, do you have a uh, what is your approach when it comes to this sort of uh, 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 resistive attitude uh, towards uh, complici- complicity uh, into the system? Ah, that's very hard. Yeah. we're all in it <laughs> in terms of resisting. Um, I don't know. I'm with a group now. We're not architects, actually. Um, you know, they come from a spectrum. of social scientists, yeah, they're sociologists, anthropologists, comparative literature, philosophers. Um, We're exploring the concept of refusal, not just to resist, but just simply to refuse. Uh, And what would that mean? Um, And so, so I don't know. I mean, what's different, I think, even if you kind of look at the modernist project, that idea of a society, um, inclusive or not inclusive, I mean, there was this still belief that it was possible to make a better society somehow. What scares me even more today is like, you don't even hear that rhetoric. It's just, you know, like I was reading Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew, um, you know, who are these modernists who did a lot of work in, in Western Africa. You know, you can be certainly critical of their work in a lot of ways, but there was an aspect of it that was fundamentally like, this is going to make a better life for someone somewhere. And now, I don't even know if that you hear so much. I mean, there's social responsibility. Um, but it seems like with globalization in financialization and the ways in which land is being speculated upon, um, that, you know, it's just about making money. It's not even, there is no social responsibility. There is no concept of society um, because we're a global one. And, you know, you just... I don't know, you just wonder what's, what's, what's going to happen, you know, since now it seems like a lot of what's happening with friends, they're working for developers, or they themselves are part of these huge, you know, these firms are now being gobbled up, so they become these multinational consortiums of, of firms that do resource extraction and planning at all levels, and, you know, and so you're just part of this kind of larger machine that's like drilling into the earth, getting the resources out and sending it off to be manufactured and it comes back as steel and then, you know, some companies building it and, you know, and so, 
you know, the question is, like, the scale of building even is becoming so... It's like you can't begin to conceive. I mean, you look at a company like AECOM, or you even look at some of the construction companies like Skanska, and you look at kind of all of the things that they're involved with globally, um, and it, it's extraordinary. And you just start to wonder, no wonder the world's kind of coming apart at the seams if if there's never anyone accountable, essentially, within these bigger bigger corporate structures in a way that architects are now just one blip. Architectural services are now just a blip. And even though services have basically been atomized into a million things from project management to, you know, the management of signage to, you know, <laughs> you know like all of that stuff. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, so architects might be this, uh, uh, those uh, very, very small blip, but um, I think with, without like a, a finger pointing, like individual, individual, uh, individual responsibilities, I mean, as, as a whole, we, we see in particular in the city, we're in New York, we see uh, many practices that are maybe even quite small, I mean, that do not at all identify with this sort of uh, huge corporate corporations. And still are extremely active in um, in uh, in uh, uh, reinforcing the the racist structure at a urban level. I mean, I'm talking about gentrification in particular. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, how many offices in the city are actually building condominium buildings in uh, mm-hmm. in uh, I mean, designing sorry condominium buildings in yeah. in uh, highly highly fast uh, uh, gentrifying neighborhoods? Uh, and one ag- once again, it's not about it's not just uh, evicting from the conversation the idea that uh, uh, small practices have to survive and they're obliged to take projects that sometimes they don't they don't really feel comfortable with and all. it's not it's not trying to to say that it is simple that it, that we should there should be a plain refusal uh, as uh, as we say but we need to absolutely acknowledge this incredibly strong responsibility because the architects bring uh, added value to I mean uh, even if it's not part of the, the sort of strategical um, uh, the strategical team of, of such uh, of such program and they're not developers they're not uh, they're not bankers they're not speculators yet they do add through their expertise uh, an added value and are and produce the, the very uh, schemes of, of those uh, of those programs so uh, how can we how can we address that and maybe uh, uh, um, uh, in a way that that the many people were con- were uh, involved with such process on a daily basis, in particular in the city or in American cities, yeah. where gentrification is very, it's extremely a fast process uh, through through this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the case of gentrification development. I mean, I just think that there are, and there are people who are sort of exploring sort of more ethical and responsible forms of development that become that allow people in neighborhoods to actually stay as opposed to being displaced. Um, and so I think, you know, it's a question of developing practices that then will allow not just companies seeking profit, but allowing um, residents to be able to afford to stay there. And that's, I think, that's the problem. Um, ideally, what should have happened was that, you know, in the post-civil rights era, everyone's wages should have wrote been able to rise equally in the United States. That clearly has not been the case. Wealth has not been redistributed in terms of moving from, you know, seeing, seeing African-Americans, Hispanics gain more wealth and then the ability to then be those people who are actually buying the neighborhood so the neighborhoods fundamentally stay racially diverse. What's happening is that you're finding poorer black and Hispanic communities being pushed out by, you know, younger, typically younger white families that have the financial resources. These are not younger Hispanic or younger black families who have the resources because they haven't been able to gain in those resources. So it's a structural problem, clearly, in terms of wealth distribution, like the ability to literally, and that's because the system's fundamentally racialized. You just can't get ahead. That's why Ta-Nehisi's Coates' Coates's essay on, um, you know, on... um, on um, sort of black wealth and, you know, the foreclosure crisis was just absolutely spot on Um, because, I mean, he really brought to the fore, and we had had, I 
met him, you know, about a year, year, maybe two years before he wrote that. And, you know, had conversations about, you know, suburbia and, um, you know, the sort of inequalities inherent in redlining. And, and, and that piece was just, I mean, he just, he just laid it out. And he just talked about what I thought was brilliant. He just said, here again is you're black, you're doing the right thing. And you can't get ahead because there's always going to be someone there who's going to take money from you. You know, subprime mortgages was a way of siphoning off any opportunity that blacks or Hispanics had toward wealth gaining. Um, but that was always a historical pattern that no matter how hard you work, and I think my parents had exactly that same situation when they bought a house, that, you know, somebody was going to take a percentage. So that's percentage of wealth that didn't come to me that went to some white guy who was the builder. So, you know, that's, that is the challenge. And so that's a much more structural problem. But I think in terms of being able to invest in real estate and be able to then gain wealth, I think they're going to have to be new models of development. But right now, the cards are in the banker's hands and the people who have access to the money. And, you know, that's, that's just not, and it's, 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 you know, like, you know, pre, pre-integration, there were a lot of black banks you know, that might have been able to continue, but those things are almost all gone now mm. uh, in a way. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. But I do think more, and I think there are people who are kind of in, you know, like the work of Teddy Cruz, the Astor Gates. Um, I mean, I think there are people who are trying to really think about how does one, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, he teaches at Parsons, and I'm totally blanking on his name. Yeah. Um, Miguel Robles de... Um, like his, you know, oh, his yeah, work. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, cohabitation Strategies is the name of the project. We were at Occupy Wall Street together. Yeah, actually. yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, that they're really trying to kind of think of, but they're small scale, almost artisanal scale <laughs> projects. Um, but I do think that that would be operating kind of within, that's operating with the master's tools, essentially. Whether that becomes replicatable, I don't know. Um Because I think it's a much larger structural problem about access to wealth. Hmm. Yeah. The I guess the, the whole the whole question, and maybe that would be the, the conclusion, is uh, whether the master's tool is architecture as such. I mean, as as a discipline uh, itself, or if it is a, a way to understand this discipline, I suppose, right? I mean, I think you could do it within architect, but I, but I think, you know, just like, you know, there was work on gender and architect. I, I mean, I think to understand that, you know, like people who've done work in history and sociology, anthropology, you know, basically pointed out that that discourse was very, very problematic in terms of how it racialized and primitivized, you know, and so they had to come back and really rethink, like, how does one do anthropology, almost to the point where you can't even do it anymore. Somehow, architecture just has never had that level of inquiry mm. in a way. So it hasn't been unpacked in a way that can allow people to then come in and, and, and work differently. I mean, I feel like the art world, to some extent, has had that happen. But, you know, architecture is kind of a... Particularly architectural history is an offshoot of, of art history. And so um, it hasn't so much. But I think because there are... The, the ability to make art, if you're, you're, you're a person of color, um, or the ability to write... I mean, you have the tools that are possible to make things. Buildings take extraordinary amount of resources to do. It's like film production. I mean, I would just say if you parallel what goes on in Hollywood and black filmmaking, for example, with the same thing that's happening, it's difficult. You have to have access to capital. And when you don't have that, and then you can't basically get crews in order to help you produce the thing that you need to make, it's very, very, very difficult. And so I think that's also what is affecting although you know there are successful practices run by african americans mm -hmm. but even that i would say that model certainly you know that sort of took off from the 40s 50s 60s a lot of these really great people who went to historically black colleges i mean those firms are not only are the the partners dying out but also that model where they were able to really sustain themselves uh, uh, you know um, on doing sort of work for the city they, they work for state clients essentially federal, state, municipal clients, those clients, those projects are now going to these other firms that now have like minority representations in the partnerships. 
So, you know, it's hard to have a kind of singular, as they call it, minority-owned business pursue that. Mm -hmm. And maybe something that architects haven't quite uh, uh, interrogated enough as well is how much the entire their entire production is designed around a body, whether they are uh, or one or two or three, it doesn't matter, but like a very limited amount of bodies that more or less unconsciously uh, uh, appears. I mean, the very fact that we never reinterrogate how high is a chair, for example, I mean, something <laughs> something as simple as that, like yeah. something we know how how high should a chair be because we have an idea of what bodies will occupy this chair. Yeah. And I think when we... When we realize that, obviously, when it comes to gender, it it becomes very it becomes very clear as well mm -hmm. that how the uh, most of the built environment is built around male bodies or very particular uh, uh, space sites are built around female bodies. But mm -hmm. in that case, there's a sort of re re uh, uh, re um, reattribution of roles within society. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we can make the exact same reading through a racialized uh, discourse, can't we? Um, I think that's a good question. I mean, I think so. I mean, I do think that there is a difference in the ways in which certain environments are made to sustain certain kinds of lives. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that's true. Yeah, no, and that's that absolutely how I meant it. Yeah, so. and so, and I, I think it doesn't go questioned. I mean, it's yeah. just... Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean it at anatomically. I meant yeah. like as a as a as a whole. We yeah. have a body in mind yeah. that that around which around which uh, the entire yeah. design yeah. is supposed to serve. And yeah, just, like the standard. Yeah, yeah the, like this. What the standard's based on, or yeah, no, like they've been all this really great work around, like to go back to to cinema or photography. You know, like film, all the lighting, everything was calibrated toward white skin, mm -hmm. right? You would never think about it, but. All of that stuff was cal until they realized, oh, you know, like in the in the 70s, like, oh, wait, there's this huge market of all these other people out there. And so let's figure out how to make film that actually can photograph properly other skin tones. Right. So and then, of course, film disappears. But um, but it's interesting, again, like how deeply ingrained and it gets literally calibrated into the technology. Mm. Um, but we don't think about it at all. Yeah. All right, well, Mabel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me in a very rainy afternoon in New York. And, oh, my uh, pleasure. And uh, thank you for being part of this, uh, of this series uh, that tries to uh, interrogate the relationship between design and racism. Thank you. You're welcome.